Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, I'm good. So it occurs to me that I would really like to spend the summer not talking about COVID and COVID policies and that kind of thing for the most part. And so I, um, for listeners, I did ask Augie this. I'm not just asking him cold now, but we, uh, we, we talked about it. And what we'd like to do is sort of have the summer of SCOTUS. We'd like to talk about the Supreme Court in terms of, of, sort of the nuts and bolts of how it became important. That's what we're going to talk about today, why you should care about the Supreme Court if you do, and if you don't, you should. Because it looks to me in the Constitution, okay, so they're Article 3, right? So they're sort of like, they're the article that got written right before everybody wanted to go home on a Friday. (laughs) And so it's like Friday at 3.30 in Philadelphia, it's 9,000 degrees in, in Independence Hall. Everybody's hot, everybody's tired, and Benjamin Franklin says, oh yeah, we probably ought to put in something about the courts. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, I mean, in my classes, particularly the courts and politics class, but also uh, uh, constitutional law classes, um, we we talk about how if you compare Article 3 of the Constitution to the uh, uh, preceding articles, Article 1, which deals with, with the legislative branch, Article 2, the executive, it really does look like uh, the uh, uh, con- uh, the delegates at the Constitutional Convention kind of sort of treated the judicial branch as an afterthought, right? Oh, yeah, no, and those guys. Yeah, yeah, right? And <laughs> And even the, the, the notes that eventually got published that were uh, uh, written by James Madison, there wasn't very much discussion in those notes about the judicial branch. However... Wait, 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 wait. There are notes about writing the Constitution? Uh, yeah. Uh, eventually, J- uh, um, uh, Madison made available uh, the notes that he took during the Constitutional Convention but there aren't, they aren't extensive notes. It's not like he was, um, you know, the secretary or it wasn't like he took minutes. These were his observations that when he had time, he went ahead and wrote about, you know, some of the conversations, some of the debate that went on during the Constitutional Convention. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll try to get a link for uh, you guys um, on our resources uh, uh, page uh, for those. So, and, and, and what's fascinating is where we end up learning a lot about the judicial branch is once again in the Federalist Papers. Uh, those papers written by John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton uh, in defense of the proposed Constitution. Uh, and they had a, a pen name, uh, they wrote as Publius, okay? But we end up learning somewhat about ju- the judicial branch in the Federalist Papers. But 
even after the Constitution was, uh, was ratified, Nia, the court as an institution, the judicial branch as an institution, was not, it was not considered a co-equal branch, at least initially, right? I mean, so if you think about, for instance, George Washington actually nominated people to serve on the Supreme Court, and like three or four of them rejected the nomination. Okay. Can you imagine just, that now? Well, who would do that now? Yeah, right? Okay. Dr. Hagenbaugh, we'd like you to serve on the Supreme Court, and you're like, nah. No. Uh, no maybe in a couple I'm, of years. I'm going fishing. Yeah. Like, what? what yeah, get back to me in a couple of years when things, you know, you know, my daughter's a little bit older, I might be able to move to DC. But right now, I just can't pull it off. But thanks for the consideration. No, I mean, some people rejected it. Okay. Uh, the court, at least initially had very little business. Okay, had very little business. Because and, and I try to remind students of this even after the Constitution got ratified and the United States Congress met for the first time, okay, and we eventually built a White House so the president had someplace to live, blah, 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 the federal government was not the, you know, the, 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 the location of where government did work in the United States. At that point, most government work in the country was at the state and local level. There weren't a lot of legal disputes that were being appealed to the United States Supreme Court. I mean, the court had so little business that in its first few terms, they wrapped up business in less than like a month. Okay, less than a month. Okay. We had chief justices resign their position so they could go back home and run for governor. Didn't one of the chief justices, wasn't he also like the ambassador to France? Yes. Something okay. like while he was being the chief justice? Because it was so... There wasn't any work to do. I right. mean, John, John Jay ended up becoming George Washington's like sort of go-to person for you know, negotiating with foreign countries while he was chief justice. <laughs> okay. Since you're, since you're not doing anything else, how about you pop over to France? Now, pop over to France at this time of, in history, is what, a two-week voyage? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, yeah. On, and then uh, you stay a month because, hello, you're not going to just turn around and get back on a ship. Yeah, I mean, but it, hang out it, with the French, you do a bunch of stuff, then you come back. So you're talking a couple of months at least that you're gone, and apparently it, that was not a problem. And, and please forgive me for belaboring the point. The Supreme Court had so very little work. The United States Congress required in the Judiciary Act of 1789 that the Supreme Court justices ride circuit meaning each one of the justices, when they were not hearing cases at the Supreme Court, had to go to one of the lower federal court circuits and hear cases. 
It's called, it, in the practice was called riding circuit and the justices hated it because they would actually have to go either by horseback or in carriage to these far flung locations where federal district courts were created to hear cases with lower federal court judges, okay? They hated it. They were just like, you know, I'm a Supreme Court justice. I don't want, why, why, do, you, why do you want me, uh, I have to go where, okay? Oh my gosh, is this one of those instances where people thought that, the, that they were overpaid and they should work more? Oh, yes. Because you hear that all the time now about, about employees, right? Federal government employees. Ah, fat cat employees. They work, they, they work next to no hours and they make, you know, good money and blah, blah, blah. So we've been saying that about federal employees. Oh, since our country start. For 250 years. Yes, right? Awesome. It's good to know that we're progressive as a nation. <laughs> okay. So they were complaining about people's golf trips even back then. Yeah, or what, what, whatever, whatever the equivalent. Whatever they were doing that wasn't their job. That's right. Sure. Okay. So yes. in the Twitter of their day, which would have been a newspaper, someone yep. was complaining, these guys are sitting around not doing anything and we're paying their salary. Yep. And they need to take a carriage out to Illinois and work on a, on a case that they care nothing about with people they don't know and have no history with. Yeah, and some of the lower federal courts actually did not have, did not meet in courthouses. Okay? <laughs> so they were going to some guy's house. Uh, usually places like um, uh, 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 churches. Oh, please tell me bars. Yes, taverns. <laughs> Uh, I'm going down for my court case, and then when I'm done, I'm going to have a beer or an ale or whatever. Yeah, I joke and with my, my students. Case, pub fries, and then come home. Okay. Yeah, I joke with my students. I'm like, I don't know why the Supreme Court justices hated this, because if 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 I had the right circuit, okay, to a tavern, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's anyway. great. Uh, and. Yeah. Cases would go so much better if everybody could just have a little bit of beer during the case, right? That's what I'm thinking, right? You have a couple adult refreshments. You're just like, okay, so what do you mean? You tell me you can't compromise here because I'm having a having drinks with you all, and you all seem to be pleasant individuals. Isn't there some sort of middle ground here that we can achieve? <laughs> okay, but nevertheless, but. As I tell students, if we think the Supreme Court, if we think the judicial branch is a co-equal branch today, that was not the case for, you know, basically, you know, the, the first decade and a half of the country's existence. And where all of this changes, and this is where I know you want us to eventually get to. So thank is, you for joining us here. Okay, is the landmark case of Marbury versus Madison decided in 1803. Okay. okay. Now, most, you know, you know, most American school kids, college students, okay, are forced to learn that Marbury versus Madison 
uh, was noteworthy because the Supreme Court asserted for itself the power of judicial review. We will get to the power of judicial review in just a moment. But what's fascinating about this case for both me and I is what led to the case in the first place. Okay, so. Wait, yeah. my favorite thing that, that people forget because the modern system does not allow for this is that back in the day, you, you voted like you voted and whoever got the highest number of votes got the presidency. And then whoever got the second highest number of votes got the vice presidency. That's correct. But now we run them as a ticket. So they're the same party. But back then, that's not the case, right? That's not, that's not how that works. So you could have a vice president who is diametrically opposed and probably often that happened because they would be running against each other as the vice president versus the president of the United States. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a big deal because it plays into a lot of this, right? Doesn't it play into a lot of this beginning hostility as it were between the various presidents as they handed over presidencies from one to another is that sometimes you were handing it over to somebody who was wildly opposed to every single thing you ever did. Yeah. I mean, think about this. John Adams it, uh, was our second president. His vice president was his main opponent in the presidential election. <laughs> Yeah, how often did they have warm fireside chats? I mean, you know. And that vice president, okay, was Thomas Jefferson, who runs, okay, against Adams when Adams ran for re-election, okay? Um, Jefferson wins, okay? Um, and... Uh, so what we're talking about here is the presidential election of um, 1800, right? Okay, so I'm going to take I'm going to take a step back. Okay, so the first thing to take note of here is um, when Jefferson wins the presidential election, he represents a political party, the Democratic Republican Party, which eventually gets rid of the Republican Party and just becomes the Democratic Party. It's the longest standing political party in the United States, okay? It's always existed, okay? It's always existed. Um, Adams represented the Federalist political party. Not only did Jefferson win the presidential election in the fall of 1800, the Democrat, Democratic Republican Party swept both houses of Congress. But to your point, Nia, back then, okay, before we get a future amendment to the United States Constitution, the president doesn't take office until March of the next year. So you had a lame duck president and a lame duck majority party in both houses of Congress 
who basically had roughly, what, three, three and a half months to do all kinds of cool things, okay, before they left office. And that's what the Federalist Party did. They took all of the E's out of all of the keyboards. <laughs> okay, this was this was before keyboards, right? Okay. But, but I mean, I'm yes. just saying that's yes. that's when you're like, oh, oh, really? Okay. The Federalist Party basically went ahead and engaged in our nation's second court packing plan. The first one, by the way was our first president. George Washington got to nominate every single judge in the judiciary because he was yeah. the first person. But is that court packing? I mean, well, court by the packing, standard, you're trying to shift it to a certain... Okay, but the standard definition of court packing is you as president are trying to go ahead and shape the work of the court through right. your nominations. Did George Washington do that? No, Washington was in many ways remarkably either nonpartisan or bipartisan with his selection for federal judges. Okay. He, he frequently relied upon did he know or did somebody in his cabinet know the person he was considering? Okay. Are they a decent person? Are yes, they make right? I mean, have they done government service? Did they have a prominent role in the American Revolution? Okay, et cetera. That, and you know, will they take the dang job? Yeah, yeah. Which apparently also had to weigh in on, on President Washington's decisions. So. Okay, so, so the federal, we don't have the this four months of we're going to go wild. Yeah, and what the Federalists decided to do was um, if we can't control the legislative or the executive branches, we're going to control the judicial branch. Okay, wait. So they're Federalists, and Jefferson is... A Democratic-Republican. And, and so he's more states? Yes, yes, yes. It's kind of a weird thing now because that's not... That's correct. That's a reversal of the current way that the Democratic B, Big D Democratic Party and yes. our Republican Party, they've now reversed those positions. That's so right. Say Jefferson would have been essentially a Republican. That's right. Because he's more about states' rights. Yes. By the Federalists are, Adams is basically saying, no, no, it should be a government, like government should be at the federal or the federal should be stronger. Yeah, I mean, because most Federalists, whether it be John Adams, John Marshall, um, Alexander Hamilton, believe that one of the deficiencies of the Articles of Confederation was it gave too much authority and sovereignty to states, and the states were hyper-competitive, and that was hurting the country. So you needed to have a federal government that could, you know, pass laws, pass regulations, create uh, 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 various policies that would unify the country. Okay. But what they wanted to do in regards to the judiciary, what the Federalists wanted to do with the judiciary, wasn't about nation building. It was power politics 101, which is 
we're no longer in control of the Congress, we're no longer in control of the presidency. Is there a branch of the federal government that we could still be in control of after we lose our positions? Oh, look, there's this third article we we stuck in the, con- the, the Constitution yes. a few years ago. Why don't we go with that one? Yes. So with the Judiciary Act of 1801, okay, the outgoing Federalists in the Congress and in the White House created a whole bunch of new federal judgeship positions, and they nominated Federalists to fill them. The Oh, so they created positions. Oh, okay. Yes. They were just filling. Now, now that to me is what I think of as court packing. <laughs> it's not, not only are you taking the empty spots, but yeah, the vacancy. you're taking yep. empty spots so that you can add more. That's right. I, I, think it, I think of that as, that's my thought about traditional court packing. Because okay. I know that, and I know we're, it's going to be discussed in a later episode. Roosevelt wanted to do that, right? Like, yeah, he wanted to add new new justices to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, eighty four people, and the, and basically <laughs> Congress said you can't do that or whatever. And it so at this so at this point, there's no one to tell them they can't do that. Yes, be, you are correct because in the Constitution, in Article One, okay, the United States Congress gets to decide, okay, the number of federal judges. The Supreme Court doesn't. There's no number associated with the number of justices that have to be on the Supreme Court. Congress gets to decide that. As long as it's odd, they can have as many as they want. You don't even have to have them be odd. Well, except that then you get into the drama of... Of tie votes. But nevertheless, you know, the United States Congress tomorrow could go ahead and say... You know, we got a problem with the number nine. We're going to add a justice to the Supreme Court because we think 10 is a really cold number. And the Congress could. It's very binary. We like the, we like the yes. roundness of the zero and the straightness of the one. Yes, right. We're going to have 10. Because you know, that's the kind of argument that Congress is making these days. Okay, it's, I mean, Congress could go ahead and, and draw <laughs> upon, you know, numerology, the study of numbers, and say... <laughs> You know, the number nine isn't a good number, okay? We want to go with 18. Okay? Oh, or if, 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 knock on wood, a couple of justices passed away, they could say, oh, well, we're down to seven. We're okay with seven. Seven's a good number. It's, That's right. We'll just leave it at seven, and we won't appoint anybody else. That's right. Congress could do that. I'm no surprised might- that Congress hasn't done that to presidents that they don't like or whose choices they don't like. Um, occasionally the Congress has played with the numbers to send a message to the court. (laughs) Don't be thinking you have a permanent job there, buddy, (laughs) because we can make that number seven and two of y'all have to go someplace else. Okay. So, okay. So wait, so if they, so if they're going to pack, does that mean that the legislature changed the number and gave them more spaces? Well, they didn't change the number of justices on the Supreme Court. They just created a whole bunch of new lower federal court judgeships. 
and appointed Federalists to fill them. So Congress did that. Yes. And John Under Adams. The influence of Adams. Yeah. And John Adams happily signed the Judiciary Act of 1801, right? La la la, I'm signing this because I'm going to be appointing a bunch of people. Well, also at this time, there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court. The vacancy was for Chief Justice. And as we've discussed in other podcasts, nobody moves up. That's not how that works. It's not a seniority thing. You don't know. Like, yeah. oh, well, you've been around forever. You go be ju- ju- chief, and then we'll appoint another justice. You get appointed as the chief, even if there's a bunch of people who've been there for 100 years. That's right. As yeah. our current Supreme Court has been there for hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, you know, technically a president could pick a sitting justice to become chief justice. So, for instance, uh, Reagan picked William Rehnquist, to replace Warren Burger as Chief Justice in the mid 1980s, but that that's unusual. Okay. Okay, because as we've discussed in a previous podcast, typically presidents avoid picking a sitting justice to become the next Chief Justice because it tends to upset the other justices who got passed over. Right. What am I, chopped liver? <laughs> I see you over there being favoritist. Okay. So Adams picks, okay, to be the next chief justice, his secretary of state, John Marshall. Now, where this becomes really important in the case of Marbury versus Madison is that in the Judiciary Act of 1801, once a person was nominated and confirmed by the United States Senate for a federal judgeship, the president had to sign the new judge's commission, seal it, and then have the Secretary of State deliver the commission. And for those of you who don't understand, basically a commission, okay, is the job offer, right? But until you get the signed and sealed commission, you couldn't take your job as a federal judge. Which, by the way, that's how jobs still work. That's right. In the real world, you, yes. you have to, you get the letter of offer. It's called an offer letter. You get the offer letter, you sign it, you send it back, they submit it, and then you can show up to work. That's right. Just, it, because, just because you had a phone call or just because you got an email saying, hey, we would like to offer you a job until it is the, 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 the actual offer is signed and sealed and sent back, you don't get to come to work. Yeah, so don't, and don't quit your previous job. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> don't, don't go in and do the mic drop thing on your, on your boss that you've been wanting to do forever. Don't do that for a a lot of reasons, but mainly don't do that until you absolutely have signed and gotten a contract back from your your new employer, because otherwise you may find yourself sadly unemployed. Yes. Okay. So commission on this day and in this day and time, commission is on paper and written by somebody, the secretary's office, and then the president signs it, seals it, hands it to a dude 
who comes in and case, finds you. In this case, the federal government's so small, it was actually the Secretary of State. Now, you want to <laughs> well, talk about... Because right, they're not doing anything else. So you might as well be a courier. Okay, but, but a lot of students get confused by this. They're like, wait a minute, the Secretary of State, isn't that person the, typically one of the nation's foreign policy experts? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Historically, the Secretary of State was in charge of administration. Not oh. necessarily. So think about it here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We actually have a Commonwealth Secretary of State whose significant responsibilities is, you know, administration, administration of the state of Virginia. Okay. okay. That's, that's the one, you know, that's, that's the foundation of the position. Okay, that's surprising to me. I didn't realize that because okay. I was thinking in terms of, oh, because they don't, they should, they, they're not off negotiating with North Korea about their nuclear weapons, so they can just take these commissions and run them off to somebody's house out in Virginia or whatever. But no, no that person's job is to do that. That person's yes. job is to okay, okay. And wait, so only, who's the Secretary of State right now? Who's the Adams. Secretary? Adams. Oh, Adam's Secretary of State was John Marshall. <laughs> who, he had, who he had just appointed as the Supreme Court. Chief Justice. Chief Justice. So now Marshall has two jobs? Okay, he can have two jobs. According to the U.S. Constitution, once he gets, okay, nominated and confirmed by the Senate, he had to do what? Oh, Resign as Secretary of State. Okay. And when he resigned as Secretary of State, there were still a few commissions that had already been signed and sealed by President Adams, but had not been delivered. Oh, that's what that is about. Okay, that makes that make a sense. Because I was like, what was he doing something else? So the answer is yes, he was doing something else. He was off being the Supreme Court Chief Justice. Okay. So, and what did he do? Did he just leave him on his desk and say, oh, hey, somebody needs to get to that at some point? He actually left them for the next presidential administration. Well, okay. That seems naive. Okay, but... <laughs> that he thought they would actually... We carry, have 200 plus years of, shall we say, accumulated cynicism... But back then, okay. that's true. He would have okay. expected that if the president's will had been, then then somebody would do it and everything would be okay. That's true. Okay. Yeah, back then they were a little more Pollyanna than we are now. Yeah, I mean because they had you know fewer years of experience of where political parties would want to stick it to one another. <laughs> okay, so less machinations. Okay, so the next presidential administration comes into office. The Jefferson administration. Okay. Jefferson appoints his good friend, James Madison, okay, to be Secretary of State. Hence the Madison of and Marbury? Yes. Okay. Madison says to President Jefferson, hey, what do you want me to do with these outstanding judicial commissions? 
and hey, Jefferson. I got a bunch of files on my desk, and I'm not sure what what. Okay, Jefferson. <laughs> okay, like any good Democratic Republican. Okay, was just like, oh wait a minute, the Federalists tried to court pack. I'm not going to go ahead and help them do that. I'm ordering you to not deliver the commissions. And one of the commissions that did not get delivered was? Mr. Marbury. William Marbury. William Marbury. Okay, wait. Let me ask a question about the commissions. Yes. So the commissions, uh, they knew they were getting that. There had already been a communication obviously not by telephone, but there had been a communication with that individual yeah. saying, do you want this job? Will you accept this job at this pay and blah, blah, blah. And the other person said, sure, I will do that. Well, I mean, think about it. That was going to occur when the Adams administration reached out to William Marbury and everybody else and said, hey, do you want to be a federal judge? Right. By the way, the pay is this. And Okay, the hiring committee, if you will, is the United States Senate. If the Senate confirms you, will you take the job? And William Marbury is like, oh, heck yeah, I want to be a federal judge. So he knew it was coming. Sure. Okay. Yes. And the position that Marbury was supposed to receive was as a justice of the peace. And again, just like the Secretary of State position, okay, Today, the justice of the peace is, shall we say, not as, um, uh, how can I say it? They uh, marry people. Yeah. I mean, people, they're, not, they're not doing huge judicial decisions that are going to affect thousands of people and, right? I mean, they're, they're yeah, administrator. I mean, okay, but, oh, you, you got the key word. Okay. The position of justice of the peace in the late 1700s, early 1800s was more prestigious than it is today. Oh. Back then, the justice of the peace frequently ran a courthouse, picked the staff, ah. set, the, set the course dot, you know, the court's docket. Okay. The lunch. Okay. They brought in lunch, so they got to decide what we were all eating. Okay. I'm kidding. What, but. And like with any other federal judgeship position, it was tenured. Okay. Meaning you can only get you can only get removed three ways as a federal judge. You get impeached, you resign, or you die. Okay. So basically, if I'm reading what you're saying correctly, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly. He could, he would be in a position then to grant favors of jobs oh. of like, oh, the courthouse needs to be painted. Let me fit, hire my favorite painter to come in and paint things, right? That kind of thing. And he would have it forever, barring doing something truly horrific. Justice of, you are correct, Nia. It was a huge patronage position. A lot of people would be, excuse the expression, sucking up to you because you were the justice of the peace. Well, and locally, you'd be that guy. So if you yes. stood up in a, in a town meeting and you said, 
I believe blah, 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 blah. It would carry at least some weight in terms of, of your influence in the community. Huge, huge. Now you can understand why William Marbury was so upset when the Jefferson administration said, hey, thanks for your interest, but we're not delivering the commission. Oh, I would be hot. <laughs> if I had been promised that, because, because here's what's, um, listeners, I'm going to admit something terrible about myself, so just bear with me. I um, count chickens before they're hatched. I would be dreaming of the things I could do, people I could influence. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm terrible about that sort of thing. Um, with the I mean, stimulus check, by the way. I had the stimulus check spent way before I got that thing. Like, I mean, mentally. I didn't spend it physically, but I had it mentally spent because I'm that kind of person. So if I was Marbury, I would already have sort of plans in my head for what I for the sure. influence that I would try to, to make. Um, good or bad, that's just how some people are. And he, if, if, and then if you said to me, oh yeah, psych, I'd be like, oh no, you didn't. What, what on earth? And so basically he said, oh no, you didn't. And he had <laughs> a court case. So, but. Oh, and so I've never understood why he was so aggravated by that. Oh, it, it, this was extreme. There was, this was, I mean, beyond it being a federal judgeship position, okay? Stature in the community. They took away his chance for stature in the community. Huge, huge, right? Um, and because, you know, when students in my classes read the case facts, they're like, well, why, you know, why was he all bent out of shape about becoming justice of the peace? I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa guys. <laughs> it wasn't, it's not like the justice of the peace today who goes ahead and marries people on a Friday afternoon at the local, you know, courthouse, right? Justice of the peace back then was basically, you know, the head honcho of a court system. Okay. Well, and, and let also he was promised something like yes. it's not his fault that Adams was trying to pack the court. He didn't say, oh yes, pick me to help pack the courts. Like that's not, that's not, he was in good faith offered a job that he took and yes. that he was expecting a certain salary and a certain prestige and then was denied that because Jefferson wanted to be a big old poopy head and not, <laughs> and not do what the previous president had promised. I mean, that would that would not fly today. If if Donald Trump tomorrow signed a whole bunch of offers, letters, well, not tomorrow, because it would take it would be closer to November, but you know what I mean. Like he yeah. signs a whole bunch of people, hires them in December, and then the incoming president says, Yeah, psych, we're not having you to a bunch of middle management sort of dudes who aren't, you know, that would be that would be a reason to be peeved, I would yeah. think. Yeah. So, and you have personal embarrassment because you know he told people. You know <laughs> that he said, I got this offer and it's going to be fabulous. It's going to be great. I'm going to kick butt and take names. You know he did that because hardly anybody's like, oh, I shall be secretive about my incredible, awesome offer from whatever company. You know what I mean? If NASA called me tomorrow and said, would you like to be our librarian? about 20 minutes later, every single person I know would know, I'm going to be the space librarian. Like, 
it would even though they have librarians but you know what i mean like the space oh yeah i I would i I would be getting a text from you i'm joining the space force as their librarian you'd be like what are you talking about yeah anyway but then the case gets complicated in regards to uh the law and the constitution because the difficulty for marbury is okay he was promised this job and under the judiciary act of 1801 because his commission had been signed and sealed okay the last part was the secretary of state should deliver it but madison was told by jefferson not to so marbury relying upon a different Judiciary Act, the Judiciary Act of 1789, files a request with the United States Supreme Court to give him relief, okay? And the, and, and, and this gets a little technical, so please forgive me, but basically um, he filed a writ of mandamus, okay? A writ of mandamus is basically a legal request that an individual makes of a court that would have the court force the government to do its job, to do its job, right? Now, the reason why he submitted it, submitted this writ to the United States Supreme Court was the Judiciary Act of 1789 um, said that writs of mandamus should be served directly to the Supreme Court, i.e. the Supreme Court had original jurisdiction. So a good way to think about original jurisdiction, Mia, is it's like a trial court. It's the court that hears a case first. No other court need hear that case first. That's what original jurisdiction is. You have the authority as a court to hear the case first, i.e. original. Now, so the Supreme Court gets this writ of mandamus. Now, as numerous constitutional scholars have pointed out, the court could have very easily said the following. Um, We don't have original jurisdiction to receive writs of mandamus, so we're dismissing the case. But that's not what the Supreme Court did. The Supreme Court, led by their new Chief Justice, John Marshall, says, yeah, let's let's take Marbury's writ of mandamus. Let's find out what's going on. Why didn't he get his commission to become a federal judge? That I was supposed to deliver, but left for the next guy to deliver. Yes, right? So by so today's... Why didn't you deliver this thing that I left on my desk with a note, please deliver? <laughs> okay. And by today's standards, Nia, he John, John Marshall sh- would have had to recuse himself. I was going to say he should have recused himself, right? Because theoretically, he's part of the problem. Yes. He's the reason why the case starts in yes. the first instance. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and many of my students are just like, yeah, what was going on with Secretary of State John Marshall? I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Think about it, guys. 
you just got nominated to become the chief justice. And even though the Supreme Court wasn't considered all that important back then, okay, you're John Marshall. You've been a lawyer most of your adult life, okay? Okay, you may have had other things going on, okay, i.e., as you just described, hey, guess what? I get to be the chief justice. Like you're gonna worry about all those things on your desk at your previous job. No, you're already doing what? You're thinking about your next job, right? So he's already moved on, right? Well, and, and he's, he has a dog in the fight of, oh, of, yeah. of, he's also Adams. He's a close friend of Adams, which would, I assume, make him not a huge fan of TJ. Oh, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson despised one another. Right. <laughs> so I'm sure that another part of that was like, oh, no, 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 no. Let me see how I can stick it to to teach, oh, I'm sorry, President TJ, yes. right? Like, I, you know, I'm sure that that was part of it, was, was, one, you don't get to undo a previous president's, because that's a huge, like, that, that's a huge step to decide that you're going to disregard the, the clear decisions of a previous president. Yes. But that's huge. That's part of it. But part of it, too, I'm sure was personal of, oh, 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 really? Okay, you know what? I'm Supreme Court Justice. You can't do anything about that. So let's hear this case. And that's again, what I would do. I'm so petty. I'd write a note personally to Thomas Jefferson saying, we've decided to hear this case. Nah, nah, nah. XOXO, <laughs> your sworn enemy. You know, like, I mean. <laughs> well, but Nia, it gets even better. Okay, so the court takes the case and basically goes ahead and says to Marbury, right? First, you do have a legal right to the commission. Second, yeah, you were promised. Okay, you were promised. Okay, second, okay, the laws of the country give you a remedy. Third, sorry, okay. That remedy is unconstitutional because we don't have original jurisdiction in the Constitution, okay, to accept your writ of mandamus. Sorry, William Marbury, you don't get your commission. That's judicial review because in two different instances in the case, the Supreme Court quite clearly said the courts have the authority to tell the political branches when they have violated the Constitution. And that's basically what judicial review is. The court's ability to go ahead and say to the political branches of government, you have violated the Constitution. Right. Now, the first instance of judicial review in this case is when the court went ahead and said to Madison, just because your boss, the president, tells you to do something, you have to follow the law because Article Two of the Constitution says the executive branch is to take care to faithfully execute the law, and you did not. <laughs> okay. Oh, tell me that they had a buzzer and made that. Oh sound. no, they didn't. But that would have been so cold. It would have right? been. Uh, 
Nope. Oh my gosh. But then the Supreme Court turns around and says, notwithstanding the fact that Marbury should have received the commission and notwithstanding the fact that James Madison, okay, should have done his job per the law, we can't force the executive branch to give Marbury his commission because our jurisdiction in the Constitution does not include writs of mandamus. So, sorry, William Marbury. Now, you might be thinking, hey, Jefferson and Madison win the case. Well, they won the case, but look at what Marshall and the Supreme Court did. They declared for itself the authority to say to the political branches, you guys have crossed the line. We have the final word on the Constitution. And Jefferson immediately figured out he got played by John Marshall in the Supreme Court. Oh my gosh, because in the, long, the, term, in the long term, it is yes. significantly better to have judicial review than it yes. is for Marbury to get his little commission. No offense to Marbury, who is dead now, but I'm sure was a lovely man or not. But, but it was so much bigger than him because if Jefferson had protested and said, no, no, you, you do, wait. If Jefferson went ahead and complained publicly that the Supreme Court declared for itself the power of judicial review, Jefferson would have been considered a sore winner. Think about it. He won the case. Nobody likes a sore winner. I mean, we really don't like sore losers. But, you know, the, uh, Marshall yeah, we boxes. We really don't like sore winners. We don't like them more than we don't like sore losers. That's right. Losers have a reason to be pissed. But if you win and you're a jerk, you just look like a double jerk. Like, come on. What? What more do you want the court to do? Oh, so if, if Marshall had, had given it to Marbury, he couldn't have, he couldn't have. Jefferson, Jefferson would have been able to say, Nia, judicial review. I mean, because it would have allowed Jefferson to go ahead and say the courts were being political. They were favoring the Federalist Party. They were not ruling on principle. But because the Supreme Court went ahead and said, I mean, they the Supreme Court basically took away from itself an authority. We can't hear in our original jurisdiction writs of mandamus. We are sacrificing for the good of the country. Oh, yeah, by the way, our sacrifice is we're also declaring the authority to say what the Constitution means. But don't focus on that. But... <laughs> Jefferson did, because Jefferson went ahead and recognized immediately he got played. He got played by his enemy, John Marshall, because Marshall went ahead and said, okay, you guys can go off and do whatever you do on a daily basis in the political branches, but if you do anything that violates the Constitution, we get to slap you down. How do you like us now? <laughs> right? That... Yeah, you lose the battle to win the war. Yeah. Marshall had the long view of that. Yes. 
Do, yes. do you think that TJ, do you think that he, it, if. Oh, hey, Jefferson hated it. Did he Jefferson know, do you think he knew, people saying. But do you think he knew at the beginning of the case? Do you think he knew? No. Or. No. Did, okay. No, Jefferson, the Jefferson administration viewed this as a, you know, a straight up political battle. Okay. They were not going to go ahead and finish the dirty work of the party that they just kicked their butts in the previous election. So Marshall, I'm not trying to rile up people in Virginia who love TJ, but Marshall was a better lawyer. Oh, oh, sure. I mean, because okay. wasn't yeah. Thomas Jefferson also a lawyer? They were all lawyers. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> that's true. They were all I, What did this person do? They were a lawyer. I mean, you could just guess that 90% of the time and be right. They were a lawyer, I, I, a, lawyer a farmer, or a silversmith. Well, um, I mean, in, in, for many of them, they considered themselves gentlemen lawyers, as in they occasionally practiced law, but they were independently wealthy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen farmers as well um so so what does jefferson do is there anything he can do or is that oh, now, well, what i mean well what, except oh okay well then this well, is judicial what jefferson judgment. did sorry go ahead okay so the case the ruling gets handed down um marbury and a handful of other federalists um, whose commissions had been signed and sealed but not delivered, never got their, uh, their federal judgeships. But what then Jefferson did was have the Democratic-Republican Congress pass subsequent legislation that would remove the federal judgeships that were filled by Federalists once those Federalists either retired or died. <laughs> So he basically took the four-year-old route of, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so Thomas Jefferson was a little bit petty, is what I'm hearing. And I'm, oh, hey. And I'm hearing that Marshall was incredibly devious. Oh, good Lord, yes. Uh, you know what? That's actually incredibly brilliant, though. To say, to look oh. at the entire chessboard and say, all right, you can have my queen, but it's going to cost you because from now on, you're going to be running for the rest of your life. You're going to be running like, cause the country now, everybody, everybody, when there's a law that people don't like, the first thing they say is there's going to be a lawsuit and the Supreme court's going to judge on whether that's constitutional or not. I mean, we talk about the long arm of the law. And, I, and I'm glad. 150 and, years later, that's still the case. Yes. And, and, and I'm glad you, you brought this around um, to why um, uh, we are discussing Marbury versus Madison for this podcast episode. In John Marshall's majority opinion in Marbury versus Madison, he, you know, established, if you will, uh, the logic that we still hear today in so many of our legal political disputes, which is the Supreme Court is in that, you know, fulcrum position of saying whether or not something is 
or not in violation of the Constitution. The Constitution ends up becoming, or, you know, in, in, in the language of, of, of Marshall's majority opinion, he said, courts need to have judicial review uh, uh, or otherwise is a Constitution a supreme, the supreme law or the supreme governing document of a nation. Oh, so he's the supreme law of the land guy. Yes, he he's is. Where we okay. get that, he's where we get that phrase. Yes, because as he pointed out, and, and, and by the way, you know, Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists and the Democratic Republican Party believed that the people's representatives should be able to determine whether or not, you know, the law, okay, uh, is a manifestation of the people or have the people already spoken, spoken in a governing document? And Marshall comes down and says, well, if the Constitution isn't the supreme law, then it's no better, it should have no more weight, it shouldn't be given any more consideration than any law passed by a legislative body. <gasps> That's a terrible idea. Well, see, that is his point. Because laws the are problem passed, laws are passed in the moment. They're passed in response to usually to specific stimuli or or a series of stimuli as opposed yes. to an overarching document that upon which you hang a framework. Oh, now see, I love the constitution more than I did a few minutes ago. Because even though I even though I don't believe I don't believe that we can we can suss out every thought that the founders had, which aggravates me when I hear constitutionalists, some of them say, that's not what the founders would want. You don't know what the founders would want. The founders, I mean, if we were right now, if the founders existed right now, we don't know what they would say about, you know, okay, let's just make one example. We don't know what they would say about the president and Twitter, right? Yeah, yeah. On, on all kinds of sides about that. We have no idea what they would say. But we do know what they thought was important. And we do know what they thought was important to enshrine in a particular document. And wow, that just, I, I'm serious when I say that just makes me love the Constitution more. Because it's it is, it is to me philosophically higher than what comes out of any legislative session, any one legislative session. Taken in toto, it is, Yeah, it really is the supreme law of the land. I mean, like it should be, because it's, you know, well, yeah, well, it should be a guide for the rest of us, you know, for, for generations. What are the, yeah, what are the overarching foundational principles right. that we're going to follow uh, no matter what time we're living in, no matter what problems or issues we are dealing with. And, and so, I mean, not only was Marshall strategically, you know, thinking long-term, but he was also laying the foundation for why even today, you know, and I have people ask me this, I have students ask me this, you know, you know, why do we, you know, why are we always saying, well, let's wait for the Supreme Court to decide? And I'm like, well, in part because we've created a system 
where an independent judiciary that isn't held accountable in elections or by the people get to set off to the side, if you will, and say, okay, wait a minute. If what we're doing right now, is it constitutional or not? Um, you know, it's kind of sort of like that person who's in, in a, a business meeting or an organizational meeting that goes ahead and says, okay, wait a minute here, okay, before we get caught up in a particular response or in the moment, is this a good thing? And if nothing else, judicial review forces the people's elected representatives to have to explain to, you know, nine people, okay, um, is this a good thing? Does this comply with, you know, our, you know, principles, our values, etc.? And it was John Marshall and the Supreme Court that went ahead and said, yes, that's the job or the role of the courts. Not to tell you what to write, but to tell you whether what you wrote was appropriate or not. That's right. And mm -hmm. then they don't tell you what to go fix. They're the worst possible editor because they mark through with red lines, but they don't tell you what's actually wrong with it, except, well, well, no, that's not true. They do tell you what's wrong with it in their opinions, but they don't okay. tell you how to change it. That's right. And when the court has occasionally strayed into telling the political branches how to fix things, that's usually when the court gets severely criticized, right? And it should. So for instance, yeah, so for instance, uh, right now in my uh, courts and politics class, um, they're reading a book, uh, David O'Brien, uh, a book about the Supreme Court called Storm Center. And he starts off the book, Nia, by talking about uh, the Supreme Court's uh, abortion jurisprudence, where the Supreme Court, starting with Roe v. Wade, uh, declared that a women, uh, uh, women have a right to choose, okay, and it's founded on a privacy right. But one of the criticisms of the Roe v. Wade ruling, and in particular the majority opinion, is the majority opinion says, okay, uh, there is a sliding scale to a woman's right to choose, and that as a woman gets closer to um, uh, uh, the end of her pregnancy, uh, a state government has more authority to regulate the right to choose. Right, it's there's known a viability as the trimester scale. framework. Right, there's a yes. viability scale, which they came up with out of whole cloth. It wasn't based on yes, knowledge. It, it wasn't based on. It reads like a law. It reads like a regulation. And even supporters of a woman's right to choose have historically said. Yeah, that part of Justice Blackmun's majority opinion is extremely problematic because it reads like something a legislature would do. Right. And it reads, and it also reads with theoretical medical knowledge, which he did not have. He was not a doctor, he was an attorney. Well, it doesn't make him knowledgeable about everything, despite the way that most attorneys <laughs> believe themselves to be knowledgeable about everything. <laughs> Because you know we weren't going to get out of this without at least one lawyer slam, but but I'm I agree with you that when you read that you you that's one of the um, 
that's one of the problems I have with that particular ruling is that is that it's it, it, it strays far beyond the right of privacy and the right of <coughs> the things that they were trying to get at. <coughs> oh, I'm so sorry. No, you, you make a really good point, Mia. Uh, and, and so as we conclude uh, this podcast episode, um, you know, for those, who, for those listeners who've often wondered, you know, what is the big deal or why should we pay, pay attention to the United States Supreme Court? Well, you know, most historians and most scholars will, you know, go back to Marbury versus Madison. If you've often wondered why you're forced to learn the case <laughs> in a number of government classes, or you hear people make reference to it all the time, well, before Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court institutionally was not considered a co-equal to the president or to the Congress. But after Marbury's, Marbury versus Madison uh, ruling, okay, all of a sudden the Supreme Court was just like, Yes, we have a right to be at the adult table for holiday meals, and this is what we bring to the table. <laughs> yeah, you you can keep the cranberry sauce, but in the long distance, I'm going to get all the mashed potatoes. <laughs> uh, TJ did not come out on the high end of that deal. No, he didn't. Nope. But, you know, um, it just goes to show that being the Supreme Court chief is an extraordinarily important position because 220 years later, no, 100, wait, no, 220, wow, look at me having struggles with math. 220 years later, that's still the, the accepted way that we do business. Yes. Which is yes. why, which is why Supreme Court appointments are so important, and I know we're going to talk about that during the summer. But anyway, thank you so much for getting us started on our summer of SCOTUS. Um, <laughs> I, there were a lot of details I didn't understand about why Mar Marbury would have been, like why he would have cared, and now I'm mad on his behalf, and he's been dead for 200 years. So. Oh yeah. I'm yeah. feeling bad for I mean, him. I need to go do a little, like, put a candle at his graveside or something because I, I feel really bad that he got shafted and then he got shafted again. But he also <laughs> gave his position for a greater, for a greater purpose. So sure. yeah, uh, he probably didn't feel that way in his lifetime. But but yeah. he also earned the infamy that he probably kind of, in some ways, hoped he'd get because Marbury is the name that every, yes. every law student, every person who studies poli-sci, every, they can all name him, even when they can't name 10 other cases, they can name his. Yep. So thank you so much. Sure, no problem. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.